I'm just going to read to you this meditation that Swamiji suggests. It's very subtle, so it's harder to practice in a moment. So why don't we just listen and try to absorb what he wants us to understand. He says, Imagine a field of tall wheat grass. You are the breeze bending the grass one way and the other. Reflect what it takes to make the grass lean as you would like it. Not a dominating force so much as an influence. If we dominate, we would break the grass. But if we influence it, it leans and then it leans and then it leans. People can't can't forever be driven. They must be influenced from within, in your case, from your own inner self to theirs. Only thus will they bend willingly to your wishes. The grass they represent will stand tall again once that influence ceases. Let your influence in this world be one of kindness and support, not of driving force or coercion. Leave to everyone his free will. When you try thus to help others, they will always be with you. Now let us recite this affirmation together. I am one with all. I work with all toward our common goal. Success and happiness. I am one with all. I work with all toward our common goal. Success and happiness. I am one with all. I work with all toward our common goal. Success and happiness. Om peace. Amen. Okay. So we are now up to chapter 14. Working with others. Do we have any leftover questions or thoughts from what we might have covered up until this point? Yes. Um, I think it was two weeks ago you were talking about... um, teaching a class, and you said that you can't, or not just teaching a class, but any, any presentation, a lecture, that if you're just talking from memory, that's not good, and that you need to talk from this other way. And you said that Swamiji trained you to do it in that way. Tell us how. <laughs> um, now, of course, well... You know, if you're a college professor and you're teaching to the test, if you're a high school teacher and you're teaching to the test, then you have to be sure and cover certain facts and certain principles have to be gotten across. But every time you have a room full of people, and of course what I'm doing is a little different than that, but um, the test that I'm teaching to is life. (laughs) This is a pretty broad, it's a very broad range. It's graded on a curve. Um, At any moment, at any moment is unique, and any audience is unique, any individual is unique. We are 
consciousness always evolving. So the exact construct of who everybody was yesterday or the audience, that you, the class that just came before, it's never going to be replicated again because you'll have new persons in there and even if you have the same persons, everybody has changed because time has passed. And oneself, hopefully, is never exactly the same. We're either going forward or we're going back, but something has changed. Now, so often people teach by having planned out exactly what they're going to say. They know just what their stories are. They know just what their points are. And there's a certain um, understanding, even a temptation in doing that. This is the best story to illustrate this point. If I go one, two, three, four, then all the points are clearly covered. But the fact is that if you're doing that and you're, you're saying, this is what I say, then this is what I say, then this is what I say, you're saying what you need to say. And you might even be saying it entertainingly. But the, the reality of the people out there is not the unique reality of, of who's out there. It's not necessarily being taken into account because your thought is only on what's the material that I'm going to put across. And it's more about what you have to say than whether or not the people are actually receiving it. And whether they're actually receiving it or not requires the ability to let go sufficiently of what's in your mind to say to be able to feel their consciousness and know how exactly it should be said in order to communicate it with them. Maybe some of it will be what you've written here because you can't be averse to that. But to merely repeat this without stopping to ask who's in the room and what do they need today Um, you're less likely to be able to actually reach them. You might be able to entertain them. You might even win Teacher of the Year Award, but you're much less likely to really um, communicate than if you do what Swami has taught us to do, which is what he himself describes. First you meditate, you pray to Divine Mother, you ask her, who's here? You know, what do they need? How do I know what they need? you're the one who understands what they need and then you have to uh, offer that as an inspiration to me um, so that we're all in tune with each other. Now, that doesn't mean that you haven't prepared really carefully what it is that you plan to say because, well, I had an experience like this when I was teaching very early on, like, you know, many years ago, 30 years ago, Shivani and I were on a joint lecture tour and we had divided. She would give some of the programs, I would give others. And her programs were all about healing and I didn't teach that, that subject at all, partly because she taught it very thoroughly. And also we were just dividing. And then her husband had an emergency in his business and she had to leave the tour. It was a six-week tour and she left about week one or week two maybe. But I mean, you know, we, were, we had a long ways to go. So she left me her notes and so on like that. And I studied her notes a little bit, but I walked out to speak and I had her notes a little bit, but I've never, not for a long time, have I really taught from notes. And even still, I couldn't understand her notes because they were hers. And I just, you know, she had a different way. Sometimes she even wrote in shorthand, but that wasn't the least of it. Um, um, so I was there and it was Longview, Washington. I can sort of still see the room. And I'm teaching the subject of healing. And I would start sort of explaining certain aspects of spiritual healing. And I would feel like a pull in the room and they would, that, that was a good direction to go. But I would reach the end of my knowledge. 
And it would sort of be like, I could feel that what they wanted was more in that direction, but I really didn't know anymore. So I would have to move, move to another subject. I mean, no one in the room would, knew it really but me. They enjoyed the, the lecture fine because I just kept going. I stayed where I could speak. But I could tell that I was ignoring the actual flow of energy in the room a lot because I didn't have the background, um, the depth of knowledge. I mean, what I did was I did a crash course because it was too unsatisfying for me to be able to teach that way. So in the context of anything that we do, you know, I, I prepare all the time. I'm always studying. I'm always thinking about these things. I'm always trying really to understand and how to articulate it. What does it really mean? Um, just coming over here today, I was listening to a talk by Swami and he made a certain statement and I just couldn't quite grasp it. So I, you know, I turned off the tape and I was just really trying to grip what he'd said so that, not merely so that I could say it back, so that it would intuitively come out of me if it was going to be the right answer for somebody's question, right? So um, then that means, and this is how Swamiji has taught us, you know, you study, you prepare, you even can plan, you know, make a few notes if you want to. But when you finally stand up to speak, you essentially put all that aside. And you just are here, and you try to offer whatever it is that comes through you. And very often after a Sunday service, people say, oh, you were just talking right to me. You were telling me just what I needed to hear. We were just talking about that on the way over here. And I don't really consider that to be like anything really astonishing. Because, of course, that's where the ideas came from. Where else would they come from? They come from the the conversation. If... If we, were, if we were talking out loud to each other, it would be perfectly obvious. And that's what Swamiji says, that it's a conversation. And only one of us has a voice most of the time, but that doesn't mean that it's not a conversation. So a lot of it is, in your own mind, this is not a monologue, this is a conversation, even if I'm the only one talking. So I can imagine, and I've never been in this situation, so I don't know how it exactly worked, where you have to convey certain information, but I can certainly imagine that there's a hundred different ways to say the same thing. And you would say it according to what the dynamic of the room would be. And one learns how to do that. You know, you have to... I joke a lot with people sometimes that I say it's not really that I actually know that much. It's just that I have the capacity to articulate every scrap of information that's in my mind. <laughs> so it, it, it looks like more sometimes, but it isn't. And, and it is something that God has given me to be able to, to just say what's in my mind. A lot of times I know people have greater wisdom than I, but they weren't given the gift of gab. So you feel it, but it doesn't necessarily come out of their mouths is, is the way things come out of my mouth. It's just what I was born to do. So the other part of it is, and speaking from memory then, with the way I, I, that's my own little, little catchphrase, is when I am, I, I haven't raised my energy sufficiently to be, to be really in tune with a, a more subtle flow. So I teach from memory. I just say what I know. Because I'm not getting any new inspiration. I'm not getting any new ideas. I'm, I'm not having a conversation. So I'll just teach from memory. Oh, we're talking about the chakras. I'll tell you about the chakras. But whenever I'm teaching from memory, it's a horrible experience for me. You know, it's just, that's when I just want to quit and go off to Bora Bora. 
because it's just, it, 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 it's not only that it's not interesting, because I already know it, um, but it just feels wrong. You know, it feels like that's not what I'm here to do. That's not what I was born to do. Just to tell people what I know, what we're born to do is to work together to create a new reality for all of us. And see, for me too, when I'm working in the way that Swami has taught us to work, then it's, it's a very um, enjoyable experience because it's really standing in the now. Because that's what it is. You're just standing in the now and you're drawing forth, you know, your, your old reality. But you're drawing it forth in the now. You're not drawing it forth from memory. It's not what you did last week that went over so well. It's just what's happening right now. You know, and some days are better than other days. Some audiences are more... Um, well, Swamiji says it depends much more on the audience than most people realize. You know, I mean, I love talking in here and I love talking to all of you. And you know, whether the size of the group is not an issue, there's a real sincerity. And so this is always lots of fun for me. I never count numbers. I mean, if just one or two people is fine if they're really interested because then it's, then it's very dynamic. <laughs> very dynamic. <laughs> okay, does that help? It's raising your energy and it's a different kind of energy. Both things. It's a different kind of energy because it's not just raising your energy, it's attuning your energy so that you're in a flow. But yes, it's also raising your energy. It's raising your energy in a a more subtle way. Um, Raising your receptivity. You know, and it's an act of faith to be able to sail out and just... Sometimes it's an act of folly to just sail out and not know where you're going. Swamiji is so adept at this I mean, I love his phrase. He can say, now here's an important point. And he will say, he has no idea what he's about to say. He just feels an important point is coming. So he will declare the arrival of an important point. And then he'll, he'll be interested to see what it is. Yeah, it's really, it's quite, uh, I'm definitely not there. But I often surprise myself. And when I listen, which I rarely do, but on occasion I've, clicked onto a video or something of myself and I think too, I think where did that come from? But it comes from all of you. That's why it doesn't feel, when I see it, I don't feel like it was I who was doing it because I wasn't. I was doing it, we were all doing it together. It's really a committee effort much more than anybody knows. So all those interesting ideas come out of your interesting questions. Whether you are actually have them articulated in your mind or not, but, you know, you're interested and you're interested in the subject and you're very receptive and you're in tune with it. So naturally, interesting ideas come out of me, too. So it's really fun. Yes, George? I remember reading... Uh-huh. I remember... This reminds me of uh, part of the reading for the last lesson where Yogananda asked um, one of... I forget who he was to uh, edit his yeah. um, edit something for him. I Ta- think it was a book. He asked Tara to edit yeah, right. his commentary on the Gita, and, and she didn't have time. And uh-huh. then Yogananda was concerned about having too much time to do yeah. the editing over yeah. over editing, yes. it, as that might take away from something. Right. In, in the exactly. Writing. Yeah. 
Yes. Oh, so I see what you mean. Having too much time, so you lose the spontaneity, you lose the attunement, you just start, and which is in fact exactly what happened to that book. You're right. I mean, if she'd just gone in a flow and done it right then when his energy was there, it, it could have worked out differently than having 40 years to analyze every sentence and take the life out of it. Yeah, exactly true. Yeah. So, I remember one of my friends once he was giving Sunday service, and this was in the very early years when Swamiji had just sort of thrown us all to the wolves as far as we felt and was having us speak, and none of us felt qualified. This man stood up, and it was a Sunday service he was giving. He said, let's see, uh, I, I will be, you know, I'll, I'm your minister for today, and I, I believe that it's not appropriate to speak except from your own experience. This will be a very short sermon. <laughs> There was another man who used to give Sunday services and he would give a couple of sentences. He was very shy. He would give a couple of sentences and then he would sort of... We used to sit down on the dais, more Indian style. Then he would just sit there and for quite some time and then another thought would occur to him and he would offer it. <laughs> we would all just... But my favorite... My favorite story of the death of inspiration was not something that happened to me, but something I witnessed. This man, whose name I won't name, very, very dear person, but just shy. And, you know, his spiritual greatness does not articulate easily. He lives it. And so he had to... He was hosting me at some group, like a a training program. This was Ananda Village 35 years ago. And, and he found himself having to host and he was so nervous to have to do it. And so he had to lead the opening prayer. He managed to make it through, you know, Heavenly Father, Divine Mother. He got all the way through. He even said, saints of all religions, humbly we bow to you all. Then there's a very long silence. And then he says, golly! <laughs> he was at a loss. He was finished. <laughs> I don't really think he said anything else. I think he just closed it off at that point. <laughs> so you have to be willing to come a cropper too. <laughs> okay. Anything more? The other part of it, which Swami articulated in the last lesson, is you say, you know, help these people. I'm here. You've sent me here to help them. Help them. You help them. You know, I want to help them. There has to be that, really that deep aspiration I've prayed that. Shivani's prayer used to be, Lord, I have no brain and you have no mouth, so let's work together on this. <laughs> and on many occasions, my prayer has been, oh my God, Lord, here they are, and here I am, and you really better do something because, you know, they expect something. And I don't know what it's supposed to be. And then often what happens for me is I'll get the first sentence. This is on Sundays. I mean, sometimes I sometimes I come in with a full idea, but sometimes I just know where to start, and I just sort of start. I mean, last Sunday I knew that I needed to start with family, and I I had some thought of where I might go, but it just went other places. You know, it didn't go where I thought it was going to go, but it just like I knew I was supposed to start with family, so I just, after all these years, bear in mind I've been doing this for decades. Okay, good question. Any other thoughts or? You know, that it's related to a certain extent to what you... Your question is related to what we were just reading in this, in this uh, meditation that Swami offered here. 
Um, people can't be driven. They must be influenced from within. In your case, from your own inner self to theirs. And so I would think that the, you know, the summation of what we were all just talking about is this thought that we're all very deeply related on a very high plane. And we're all sort of reaching for the same reality. And so what we do is we focus together to try to elevate ourselves to that same reality. And the, you know, the context is that I'm offering you um, inspiration. I'm really offering you what I've learned from Swamiji because I had the opportunity to learn it. So I'm offering it to you. But you're, um, we're both connecting on the inside and what's going out on the outside is so much less than that. And um, Swamiji used to say that he should, you should visualize how he, he, he did. He would visualize, when he saw an audience, he would visualize that he was talking to Master. And people would say, well, how can you teach your own guru? I mean, that, that they didn't understand what his image was. But what he meant was he, the presence of Master in each one. In other words, the spiritual potential of each, of each person is resting in their heart. And what Swami would, tries to do is he tries to awaken that. So it's not like you're trying to, to impose something on someone or trying to fill their mind with information or this chapter is about leadership and about working with people. You're not trying to get people to do what you want them to do. You're trying to awaken within them the desire to do what it is that we're trying to do together. And you see how very different that is? Because you can always exert power over people and try to make them behave in a certain way. And as a speaker, you can also impose upon people your ideas. You can argue them into submission as a leader or as a speaker. You can make your arguments so persuasive and you can be so mocking of the opposition that nobody will dare to oppose you. But that's not the same. But that's not the same as actually um, having them perceive the truth of what you're saying or be inwardly inspired to go along with what you've suggested because they themselves see the wisdom of it or even if they don't see the wisdom of it, they see the wisdom of your asking them. I mean, they, they trust your creative ability or something like that. But... Uh, that's the only kind of learning that really sticks. One of the reasons that all of us remember so little of our schooling is because so much of it was just imposed upon us. And we, we took it for a while. We memorized it. We, we, it was ours for a short time, as long as we needed to have it with us. But of course, the things that we really learned and really remembered were because somewhere, somehow, it touched something inside of us and then that resonated back. And so what Swami's talking about in here, in working with people, is... And, you know, the image of the grass is a very interesting one because, you know, it does all bend over with the wind. I'm, I'm sort of starting from the end of this lesson and going backwards. The front of it was so extremely interesting of this lesson, but now we're in the back of the lesson, so we'll stay there for a few minutes. But uh, um, Swamiji really talks in here about the importance of the creative leader and the importance of the creative leader's role. And he makes very short shrift of this idea that, you know, every, that, that the committee is smarter than the individual. One of the uh, factors that Ananda has always been Swami's extremely balanced but in very conscious position of leadership. And I'm not talking about spiritual recognition or anything like that, which is something I talk about at other times. I just mean, just in a very practical way, the way he leads, which is he, he's very careful 
to solicit support for his ideas. He's very careful to give everybody an opportunity to talk about it and think about it. But he never really relinquishes the leadership. He never comes into any group and basically just in a wide open way says, well, what do you think? Let's brainstorm. I don't think, I mean, occasionally we brainstorm, but he never just starts with a blank sheet and says, okay, you know, what are we going to do? He always begins with some well, carefully considered idea that he's usually shared with quite a few people in the room. So everybody comes into it with some um, real energy and he will guide that energy and will often change his mind. He doesn't impose it. He'll change his mind if for two, two reasons. If he feels that people are just not going to see it. And if people are not going to see it, he knows that there's no, absolutely no value in just pushing everyone over because the, the, the grass will break then, you know, and it'll never stand up straight. So you won't really have accomplished what you wanted. You'll have disempowered the people around you and you won't really have helped them either. And in the end, it won't help your project either because you'll be surrounded by broken reeds. Or he'll change his mind because people have uh, given him ideas that he didn't have before and he'll really see, oh, well, there's a, that's another way to do it. I had, there was another thought in there that I lost for a minute. Let me try to find it. It's odd over the years because I remember in, it was like in the 80s sometime. I have, I have lots of notes because I took so many notes over the years. And there was a meeting one of the great lacks at Ananda Village is that there is no large temple, dedicated temple. You know, it's just still, after 40 years, they meet at the expanding light and then they converted the Hansa building into a temple. But there's no, you know, temple like this at Ananda Village and you really think there ought to be, you know, some really big, beautiful, dedicated structure. It's just, it's never been created. Oddly, I found these notes from these meetings, this meeting in the early 80s or the mid-80s, I think it was, and Swami gathered a whole group of, whether it was, some, it was some solid core of the community, and he announced very strongly that he really felt that it was, it was time for us to build a temple. And we had a design for it, and the thought was there, and it was really time for us to build a temple. And he was sort of trying to get all our energy strong about that. And then we had a lunch break, and a few people, just, just a few um, financially oriented people, but people whose energy was not all that expansive, came to him over lunch and just said, we can't, we can't build it now, it's not the right time, we can't build it. And it was so forceful that when he came back afterwards, he said, well, so-and-so says that we are a little overextended, we're overextended and we can't build it now. Now, in retrospect, he wanted us to override that point of view. He wanted the rest of us to say, no, yes, we can. We have the magnetism. We can do this. But instead, just the room sort of folded up. And Swami just said, all right, like that. But I look at it now and I think, gosh, just, I mean, how, how, what a critical moment, you know. But he couldn't magnetize us to it. And if he couldn't magnetize us to it, he, he writes in here, it's very interesting, group energy is very good for, for, you know, thrusting out and manifesting the original creative idea. But group energy is not, a big group is not necessarily the place to make the initial decision unless there is a creative leader who's guiding that force. That's what, this is all about working with people. How do you really make an enterprise successful? And he says, you know, among other interesting things that 
the leader himself has to be creative because the leader has to, one, has to have ideas that other people respect. The leader also has to feel, he doesn't write this here, but I know he says that, has to be comfortable with other people's creativity. And usually that means that the leader has to be creative enough himself that he's not threatened by other people's new ideas. If a person is, if the leader is not creative himself or herself, then they can only go down certain channels and other channels are threatening to him. You know, sometimes that you find someone like that, that their mind isn't as broad as some of the people who work under them and they don't have the bandwidth to accept it. But then, he's telling us here, you have to magnetize people. You have to magnetize people by your conviction and by your careful preparation and by your loyalty to them and all sorts of issues like that. But that's the best way. But then, he says, you need to work with people who are harmonious with you. And you, you have to really find those people who are part of your creative team. I know over the years, Swamiji has often liked to have people around him that weren't necessarily the most efficient or um, the most this or the most that, but they were very supportive of his creative energy. And being supportive of his creative energy made them a real asset for his team because he had enough ideas. He didn't necessarily need people who had really great ideas all the time. I mean, it's always helpful. But they were, they were very supportive of, the, of where he was trying to go. And if you're, if you're looking for co-workers, if you're looking for people to do things with you, it's really important to find people who have a harmonious sense of flow with where you're trying to go. Because if you're not collectively focused on um, what your creative goal is together, and worst of all, and he talks about this in here, if people are just interested in themselves, you know, sort of backbiting and fighting against and always trying to tear down. I mean, nothing can ever get done. And Swami, I love the way Swami says it. He's so realistic. Remember the last lessons, feet on the ground? He said some people just can't be worked with. You just have to work around them. You know, just flat. He's, his, his idealism is very practical. Some people who are really steeped in their own narrow-minded negativity will never change. I mean, and he's not being... Um, I mean, he's loving, he's kind, he's supportive, but as he puts it, you'll pour energy into them and the moment you withdraw it, they'll sink to their below zero spot because it's just what they do. And one of the, the principles that he, he emphasizes it only in that point, but he always talks about that with working with people, is that you really can't waste your time trying to make negative people positive. You know, uh, so often leaders think that what they have to do is they have to find the one who disagrees and they have to try to persuade that one but you don't. You just get those who are going with you and you go forward with them. And then, as he talks about in other places, either that positive flow will pull the reluctant ones in or it will spin them out or sometimes it will simply marginalize them. And you just let them be marginalized. It's their own choice. You have to be very realistic about this. But, but above all, and he, he talks about this too in the... Um, you know, in the, in the part about the grass, it, it has to be a real um, desire to help people be contributors. Elsewhere, and I don't know if it's in this book or another, he says, most people don't have a lot of good ideas, but almost everyone has one or two good ideas. <laughs> he said, so you have to always be willing to give people the opportunity to contribute their good ideas. Um, but you can't just sort of passively sit there, as I was saying earlier, and wait for them to. You know, there is, I think, a myth 
He says it's a myth that a larger group is going to be smarter than an individual. It's not likely. It just isn't likely because inspiration comes from energy. And you, you don't really get inspired energy just by getting a lot of uninspired people together. You know, if you get a, a group of inspired people together, then you'll have really good energy. I remember once, it was very interesting, we had one brainstorming session with Swamiji, or one just sort of like, wouldn't it be wonderful? We were actually planning a temple. That was a, it was a conversation about a temple. And it was just one of those days when nobody blocked the energy. Nobody blocked anybody's energy. And the temple we designed became preposterous, you know. We had a cupola um, that was filled with crystals, and then we had it filled with gemstones, and we had the rays of the ruby light coming in, you know. And I mean, it was marvelous. But it was sort of like we, we allowed ourselves to just dream without um, feeling the need to say, oh, we can't do that. And afterwards, Swamiji essentially said, you know, if we did more of that, we would be a lot farther ahead in this community instead of always... Um, well, he told me once that I... He said to me once that uh, sometimes I was... I, I tended to be negative. And I was quite surprised because I certainly don't think of myself as negative. And that was when he said to me, because you're so factual. <laughs> he said it like that, factual. You know, I'm, I'm always... I was. I've tried to be a lot better. I was, I was so often correcting, you know, people's impressions by making them sure they knew all the facts. And I really didn't tune into it until somebody was doing it to me. <laughs> and then I realized that, you know, just reminding me when I would say something like in that particular case, like, you know, I really do think this will work out. And then the person had to tell me of all the obstacles that had to be overcome in order for it to work out, just in case I didn't know what those obstacles were. But... I didn't need to know those obstacles. I was just trying to move the energy forward. And by being so factual, one actually can pull the energy down. But this is, again, the sort of the creative flow that um, people have to work together from Swamiji because he is such a creative leader. We've all sort of learned a little bit how to work with creativity because, you know, there's a time and a place for certain kinds of comments. Sometimes... It's very interesting because he's very open to input, but he also demands that you be very sensitive to his reality. So it's not like he's always open to input. There was one uh, famous lady who seemed to have no sense of timing, and Swamiji was working on some project, and she was helping him, but she was so full of criticism. I don't remember now what the project was, but he said, if you say one more thing, I'm just going to stop. And she did, and he did, and he never went back to the project. It was that all of her um, energy was, it finally was more than the creative flow could bear. Now, I say all this too because not all of us are leaders. Very often we're not in a leadership position, but we're trying to help someone else to be a good leader. So we can definitely contribute by understanding how the dynamics of a group work. And, and if you have somebody who's, a, well, whoever your leader is, you're going to have to support him. I love what Swami says in here you may have to leave the situation that you're in, except sometimes that's not possible, and then you just have to decide that this is your karmic lesson and you have to work on self-development instead. <laughs> it's like if you can't fix it, it, then you have to fix yourself. And if you can't fix it, then you have to assume that the reason I can't fix it is because I have to fix myself first. But one of the ways we can do is you know, in the, in the position that I've been in for the last so many years, it's really made it very clear to me 
how really badly I behaved a lot in the years before I understood. Because I, I often sat in meetings with Swamiji and was extremely unhelpful because I didn't understand the dynamic of how you worked with a group and how you worked with a leader. I just was caught up in my own ideas. But now, you know, trying to move groups of people forward, you begin to see sort of what supportive energy is like and really how marvelous supportive energy is and how much more important supportive energy is even than occasional flashes of real brilliance and especially how much more important it is than the tendency to pull things down. There was a very famous meeting that we had when we were first founding our community and we had this this sort of all-day session in the other um, temple, which was a storefront we had over in California Avenue. And we had about, I don't know, 50 people in the room. And we were trying to magnetize um, the community. And I'm not sure, I don't think we had the actual property yet. We were just trying to magnetize the idea. And we were doing a lot of group involvement. trying to Because after all, it was a community. We were trying to get them to see the, the possibilities of it. And there was about maybe a third or half the people in the room had lived at Ananda Village and understood what community was or had lived in our group house. And the others were, were, had no experience but were interested. Um, and we, had, we, had an, we were doing an open session of just open mic conversation. And everything was really building to a very dynamic commitment to make this community happen. And then one person expressed some anxiety about what it might be like to live in a community and what might happen to them and how they were afraid of this and afraid of that. And then the next person said, yes, I understand just how you feel. You know, I've had some of those same fears. I've been wondering about this and I've been wondering about that. And when the third person started in to speak, it was very clear to me, and I was leading the meeting, it was very clear to me that they were absolutely destroying all the energy that we had built up, all the positive magnetism. And that man, who's never forgiven me for it, just right in the middle of his sentence, I said, Ah! It's lunchtime! (laughs) I said, Well, the time has just gotten away from us. I mean, I just, as I was as rude as I could be, I just cut him off right in the middle. I thought, We cannot afford to let this man say one more word. Because he had really strong downward pulling magnetism. It was his nature anyway. But he was number three in the, on, the, on the match, you know, the third one on the match in the, in the foxhole is the one who got shot. That's what they would always say. The first one would light the match and the enemy would notice. The second one would give them time to load and the third one on the match was the one who got killed. And uh, he was the third one on the match. You know, it was just like he was finished. And, uh, and then when they came back, I mean, when we took the lunch break, I said to the others who were involved, I said, you know, no more open discussion. And when they came back, we had it all controlled. And we allowed people to give their ideas, but we never allowed it to just go where it was going to go because it was not going to help us. You know, because there was more wisdom in the leadership than there was in the room. (laughs) Because we knew that their fears were groundless and there was no point in expressing them. And they would not be solved by discussion. They would only be solved by getting a community and having people move in. And so we needed to get a community not to discuss why it might be a problem if we all lived in one. You know, and so that's, that's what you have to know. You, if you're going to really work with people, above all, you have to watch the magnetism. And, I, I, and from that experience, which was very early in my time here, like, like 1988, um, I remembered many, many experiences with Swami Kriyananda where 
I never, you know, I've said this on many occasions, I'm, I've always been interested in what he does, and because he's often explained himself to me, I've often been privy to his inner thinking, and I don't just have to watch his behavior. But he, was, he would be very unpredictable in terms of allowing people to participate. You know, he would take one question and he would answer it very carefully and then someone else would start another question and he would just cut them off at the knees and not give them any energy. And, and he would offend people. People would be very offended. But when I would start watching it, and especially when I became, had some of the same responsibility, I would realize that some people would just, by the nature of their questions, by the nature of their consciousness, if you allowed them too much of an entry into the space, they would just take the energy down. And above all things, when you're trying to work with people to move something forward, you have to preserve the magnetism. And the magnetism is not just based on giving everybody a chance to speak. The magnetism is based on the magnetism. And some people's magnetism pulls the energy down. Or like in the case of the community, they were just awakening all these fears. And those fears were foolish fears. They were real to the people who were having them, but they were not founded in anything. So there was, as I said, there was no point in airing them. And, and so I realized, watching Swamiji over time, that he would just be sensitive to the magnetism. And even more than that, you see, Swamiji doesn't even want you to articulate your problems. You know, some counselors want you to really articulate your problems. As soon as he sees people going too far down the road of their own difficulties, he'll often just cut them off. You'll sort of go to, he used to counsel, he doesn't anymore, but you would go to him for counseling and you would want to tell him what was happening to you. Maybe you'd get two sentences out and he would change the subject. And you would think, what, I came here to, you know, but it was like he would watch you starting to sabotage your own capacity to go forward and he would think, why would I do that? And then he would just try to infuse you with positive magnetism because if you have positive magnetism, you don't have the problem anymore. You see? The problem only exists when you don't have positive magnetism to solve it. As soon as you have positive magnetism, it ceases to be a problem. In fact, this classic remark by this girl who didn't stay with us didn't last at Ananda is what I mean. She said, I don't really like to be around Swami Kriyananda too much because when I'm with him, I can't remember my problems. (laughs) The implication was she couldn't solve them if she couldn't keep them uppermost in her mind. She didn't get that, well, she just didn't have them because her consciousness was above the level of problems. And so it's, it's very tricky what you're doing, and that's why also you, you can be helpful in a room when you see the energy beginning to slip, if you can help move the energy forward. If it doesn't all have to come from the person in charge, that's really a great help. And or if you, one thinks about how one is speaking, and that's, in retrospect, you know, I, I feel very badly about a lot of the meetings that I messed up with my hard insistence thinking that I was being helpful by being so um, contractive. Very, you know, peculiar. It was a peculiar delusion, but there you have it. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll do the first part of this lesson, which was the part I liked the most. Um, Swamiji starts this lesson in such an interesting way with the Tolkien trilogy, which, you know, probably most of you know either from the movie or from the book. And he's talking about, I've heard him talk about this before, that his, his objection to that story, and it, it's very interesting when you think about it, is that there is this overarching evil force, 
and everyone is fighting against this evil force, but I love the way he describes the heroes. Frodo is virtuous almost by default. His glory is entirely he he owns, his own. The goodness he demonstrates is something of which most of us might at least feel capable. What did he say about um, the good people in the story strike one as average, well-meaning Englishmen? (laughs) Best exemplified in the good old Frodo, the hobbit hero, honest and kindly, who manages almost by chance to stumble into heroism and deserves to win because he is a fine fellow. (laughs) It's just when we had a lot of fun with that. And then he says, Tolkien offers no suggestion that any greater power supports Frodo or might support us, or might support us. He seems to have wanted to show that human goodness, frail reed though it is, presents the best antidote there is to the world's evil. It was a very interesting, actually, I've been thinking a lot in, in the disciples class I, I was gave, giving last night. I was sharing what I experienced at East-West on Saturday night before that, which is, I, I, I know that Master has declared, and Swami has declared with tremendous force, that these, the challenges that are coming to this planet are because people need to turn to God And he doesn't say people need to live more ecologically. People need to take shorter showers. You know, people need to share the wealth. Um, He doesn't say anything like that. He says just powerfully, people need to turn to God. That's what they need to do. And I can hear that, and I know what people posit against that is this sort of idea, well, you know, we, we can just all be good. Let's just be good together and We'll all think positive thoughts and we'll recycle and, you know, we won't be evil. We'll, we'll do practice random acts of kindness and all the things that people do. But they don't really want to turn to God. In fact, sometimes they actively don't want to turn to God. They want to put their faith in human goodness. And I can feel that that's hopeless. It's just not going to work. Um, you, you sort of go to a fanatical terrorist who believes that if he blows up you know, New York City, then he'll go to heaven and you say, now be nice. It's like you can't, the forces are not equal because the the force that he has going is just what you're offering back to him is irrelevant. It, It has to do with many different levels. But at the same time, I just hadn't been able to grasp exactly how you say that. And I I think at Sunday service, I mentioned it also, um, more, not as strongly, not as, with as much force as I did the night before, but the point being that if you're just trying to make this world a comfortable place, you are behaving like a Vaisha. You know, in the caste system, the Shudras are the peasants, the Vaishas are the merchants, the Kshatriyas are the soldier kings, and the Brahmins are the priests. And a Vaisha level is better than a Shudra. It's better than just being tamasic and self-interested. But the reason it's called a merchant is because you're always trading. You're not really selflessly giving but you'll, you'll give a good bargain if they give a good price. So it's always, you've still got self-interest going there. And at the level of being a Vaisha, you have this idea in your mind that if I can make the world what I want it to be, then I'll be safe. Because what characterizes each of the castes in terms of consciousness is, is how they believe they can get happiness and how they believe they can stop suffering in themselves. 
And the belief of the Vaishya, you know, is that I'm happy when I get for myself. And the way I stop suffering is I make the world behave the way I want it to behave. So you get rich, and you get a big house, and you have lots of um, savings, and you have maybe a gate around it, and you have security guards, and you get heavy furniture, and you're just there, you're safe. And people do what you say because you're powerful and you're rich, and you're just, just all this way. It's all about making the world the way you want it, and then you feel fine. Well, a great deal of what people sort of posit as like moving the planet forward is really this desperate desire to make the planet different than it is so that all feel better. You know, it hurts me that those people are starving. I mean, there's a certain generosity in that. It hurts me that the rainforest is being decimated. It hurts me this red redwood tree is coming down. So the way I'm going to stop, the way I feel, is I'm going to make it be different. And maybe even what you want to make it is uplifted. You're not a murderous person. But the motivating force is that I know what's best. I don't like this. I'm going to make it different. Whereas um, kshatriya, or um, or, or Brahmin level, is we begin to understand, first of all, we begin to understand that our happiness does not come from making that world okay. Because it's impossible. And that's what we learn, isn't it? That we try to make the world stand in line for us, and it won't. We get everything all lined up, and somebody gets cancer. You know, we have just the perfect job, and then the boss sells the company. I mean, something always happens. We've got it all lined up, and then we get old. It, it just doesn't, nothing stays. So over many lifetimes of trying to make the world stay in line in order for us to feel okay, we begin to realize that I have to master myself. Because I'm the constant here. Conditions are always changing, but I'm the constant. And if I can find within myself the strength and the happiness that I need and I can control my own reactions to this world, then at least I'm beginning to operate in a sphere that I can have some mastery over. And more deeply than that, one begins to ask the question, maybe I'm not the one who knows everything. Maybe my belief that it ought to be different is not really the last word. Maybe there's some other power at work here. And we ask that first because we were confused, but then we ask it because our simple solutions don't seem to actually be bringing about the result that we want. I gave my children everything and look how they returned. They're so ungrateful. You know, I sacrificed my life for you and now you just walk out on me. It just doesn't seem to come out right. And so at a certain point it crosses our mind. Maybe there's some other intelligence at work here. Sometimes we learn it from suffering. Sometimes we learn it because that which we thought was the worst thing turns out to be have a whole different message behind it. So we begin to ask. We begin to enter the stage which is called the quest where we begin to say, what is happening here? And then as our consciousness becomes more subtle, we realize there's a, there's a completely different force at work here. There's a, a, another power that's, that's moving. And it's not just a question of what I declare. It's, it's, it's my gaining the self-mastery to cooperate with, with, with what's happening instead of always thinking I'm going to impose my will. And that's turning to God, you see. And what's going to happen to this planet is that it's going to become so bad, that's what the masters tell us, that human beings are going to realize, 
I can't control this. And, and we're going to be forced to surrender our, our sense of egoic control to a sense of, of devotional relationship with a higher power. And when that begins to happen, then that will create the necessary harmony, really for the harmony to be restored. Because that's the whole point of it. Now, to come all the way back to Frodo, <laughs> what you have in that Tolkien trilogy, the way he describes it, is you just have these, this sort of ordinary human goodness just sort of accidentally being strong enough to, to conquer this all-pervasive evil. And that is, when I thought about it, that's exactly the picture that sort of people want to have when they, when they don't want to have to surrender their egos to God. They just hope that if I have a nice refined ego and I'm a really nice person, just like Frodo was, then somehow or another that'll be enough. But it's entirely naive, although Frodo succeeds. But that's why Swamiji says the Tolkien trilogy fails to be an epic of, you know, everlasting proportions because the worldview it offers is not sufficient. And just that very picture of sort of um, that um, human goodness, frail read though it is, presents, is the, is the only answer to evil. I was at a, a Christmas Eve service at someone else's church. It wasn't Christmas Eve, but it was a service at Christmas time. A friend of mine wanted me to go and basically... Um, hear her children sing in the choir. So I went. It was perfectly enjoyable. But I was so struck by the message that was offered. And the message was, uh, part of it was lay people reading and some of it, I don't remember whether it was the preacher actually preaching or not. But that's exactly what the message was. It was like, there's so much suffering in the world, you know, but at this time at Christmas, let us think about the Christmas star. You know, and then... There's war, and now let us have a moment, you know, and send our love to all those who are suffering on the battlefield. And, but it was like, let's hope that this will do something. Frail read, though it is, of our human goodness and our good feelings, let's hope that this will do something. There was no power, and, and what Swami is pinpointing here is that there was no belief of how, and no understanding of how we ourselves can become instruments, can become in tune with that, can become broadcasting stations for that. But in order to do that, you see, you have to transcend this more this mere human sentimentality about it. And we have to really understand that there is this powerful force of evil in the world, but it's matched by this powerful force of goodness that we can attune ourselves to. And that's, I mean, the first question that was asked tonight, how do you... Um, teach in the way that Swami was trying to teach us to do. And that exact question is, there is this force in the, in the universe and we attune ourselves to it. And we, we put aside what I think is a good idea. And maybe it'll come back to me. Maybe God will give back to me exactly the same idea that I had. But if he does, that's a nice coincidence. But the main point is we understand that we are not ourselves. And it's true that just with our ego selves, we are a little tiny frail reed. But once we unite ourselves with the infinite spirit, we are infinite in our capacities. And the more powerfully we unite, that's the only source of strength that we have. But having that 
you see all, all great things can come. And I mean, Swami's only talking here about business, about how to make money and so on. But we have to understand who and what we really are if we're really going to make these principles operate. And it's, um, um, it's the most depressing part of our world right now because we do see this rising force of evil that really does seem to have a mind of its own and seems to be literally making people insane. You know, what happened in Rwanda as an example, I mean, there's no way to explain that. It was, it was demonic. It was a satanic force that just took hold of a whole people and just turned them into devils. And in order to combat that, there has to be an equally large and more powerfully dedicated group of people who, have, who are training themselves by their daily spiritual practice to be powerful instruments for the other force, for the, for the force of goodness. And as Swami says in here, um, every, it's, it's, it's cosmic in its nature. The war between good and evil is cosmic in its nature and far subtler than people usually suppose. Because he makes this point the, the, what Tolkien here missed, and he, this is so interesting, he says, the power of evil in the Tolkien story is dominating everyone and making them do things. And one of the reasons, as he described it, that Tolkien wasn't able to speak of the power of good is because good doesn't try to dominate. Good just lets everybody do whatever they want because that's the nature of goodness, is that it doesn't try to exert power over others. But the way Swami puts it is that he misses the nature of free will. In other words, when we harmonize ourselves with a higher power and act as an instrument of that power, that is our free will. Our free will is not to act completely outside of creation itself, to act outside of this good and evil, this war. It is to choose which side we're going to be on. And our freedom is to do those things which will bring us happiness. It's not freedom to be compelled to do things which will make us miserable. Freedom is the self-mastery to choose that, which as Swami says, which will sink deep roots into goodness. And when we sink deep roots into goodness, we behave with dharma. When we behave with dharma, we always have victory. But that's an impossible thing to attain unless, one, we understand it's there. And um, two, that we devote ourselves to really being conscious of the fact that my, my freedom is the freedom to choose goodness and that I must choose it time and time again. And that is the great drama that's going on. It's, um, it was a fascinating beginning to this chapter, this, this lesson that he begins with this whole story about the, the massive force of good and evil. And then he goes, you know, he just goes into competition versus cooperation and describing the force of maya which is the force of negativity divides instead of seeing the world as a unified flow it sees it in all these fragments and it imagines power comes by pitting those fragments against each other but that is as he puts it um, the nature of cosmic maya delusion is the will to divide one from another and also the power to impose that thought. And that's what happens to us. That The force comes into us and we imagine that the only way that I'll be strong is by being stronger than you. And we don't understand that if we align ourselves with the 
sense of cosmic unity that the power I have to bring everything together will ultimately bring me far more than the delusion of of separating myself from everyone. And then he just takes that right into leadership and how we work with people and how we try to draw them together and how we try to awaken them from the inside into a cooperative spirit with us, which is entirely contrary. And he gives us these terrible examples of, you know, ruthless competition being proposed to people as the way to succeed. You know, don't care about anyone, just care about money. Um, fight one another and I reward the people who are the most fierce. And that is what we see. But it's not success in any real sense. And that the finest companies in this valley and in the world are the companies where the culture is supportive. It's just the truth because more good can come from that effort because even though he says the mighty consciousness that created the universe is even above good and evil, goodness is a clearer reflection of the supreme will, as he calls it. We attune ourselves with goodness and we develop a clearer sense. He uses the word discrimination because perfection can be realized requires the gift of discrimination. And the only way we can discriminate, which is to see things clearly, is when we're in tune with the one, when we're in tune with goodness. A fascinating description of things. You know, I, I loved the Tolkien books. I used to read them every few years, you know, until I practically memorized them. But when I went to see the first film, I think I walked out of it because evil was so much bigger than goodness in that movie. And partly it was like it's one thing to read about evil things, but it's quite another to see it so hugely displayed on the screen that I... I mean, maybe you can defend the movies. I mean, I think that they did a, they tried hard, but I just wasn't interested in that much evil. It was just too much evil. And, and it's interesting the way Swami puts it, because it, it wasn't even so much that there was evil, but there was nothing correspondingly um, immense on the good side, just well-meaning people. And well-meaning people, even Master said, the reason that Gandhi succeeded in liberating India non-violently is because the English are fundamentally gentlemen and they have a strong sense of fair play and once the Indians were standing there unarmed the Indians, the uh, English people couldn't just mow them down he said in Russia they would have just killed Gandhi and that would have been that <laughs> you know, it just would have he would never have succeeded but there was a, a basic parody in what he was working which is to say that mere human goodness alone will not necessarily triumph. Dharma will triumph. And sometimes self-sacrifice, therefore, will triumph. And I'm not saying that Gandhi was, not, was merely humanly good because he was, he was much more than that. You know, he, was, he had a tremendous amount of... He was a Mahatma. He had divine, divine force. And he was very conscious of what he was doing. But still, it's, it's like in the, in the battle that we're in now, we're, we're working... I mean, the way that satanic forces working in the world now it's just it it has to be matched divine with divine will it's way way beyond just um, positive thinking so any other thoughts or questions about that yes george it's right there i i also like what he said about competition cooperation yeah. um he the idea that the better way to... We, we've heard um, 
at times at competitions what ruin a lot of uh, uh, what's going on in the country, what, mm -hmm. what's causing the way we ruthlessly compete and, right. and tear down. And it's coming to that this function of, that, of working that way is yes. we're starting to see. He says, uh, Swabi is saying that competition, looking at it in a sense, you, you being better than, than the way you were, or, right. you know, and a lot of the business, some of the more enlightened business writings are coming to that idea that continuous improvement. Right. You, you're, you're always focusing on yourself, not on beating your, right. your competitor necessarily, but being better than you are, continuously improving. Right. And um, it's, a, it's great. I mean, I, I love reading that. I think it's a, right. it's a more enlightened way to do business. And Absolutely. And we're yes. coming into Dwapar Yuga, and people are beginning to understand that. And they're beginning to understand that if you plant your roots in higher principles, in the end you'll be stronger. I mean, even just the way he describes it. So you, you, know, you let your friend go out of business, and then you go with his other people that you don't even know. And he says, what will they do? As soon as they have your account, they'll raise your prices because they'll have driven your other person out of business and you'll have no choice because they're going to treat you back exactly the same way that you treated the other person. And it's, it, all of that kind of thinking is, doesn't take into account the law of karma <laughs> that what you put out will come back. I mean, Swami describes it very dynamically. And fortunately, there's, there is a, a, a beginning of awakening. And Master promises us after we go through the tumult that will come, people will um, turn away from this intense self-centeredness, egoic self-centeredness, to a more divine way of thinking. And then when you have a more divine way of thinking, you, you can't treat people like that because you're treating your own self. Yeah. So the future is better. I don't, know, I don't know what the time frame is on that. You know, will we live to see it? Will it be our children's world? Will it be tomorrow? Will it be 2012? Will it be, you know, who knows? Swamiji said when Master spoke in 1951, it seemed like he was talking about it on Sunday. It was going to happen on Monday. You know, now 60 years have gone by, so time is very confusing. We'll see. But in the meantime, we can be part of the solution. That's as simple as that. You know, this is all about divine awareness. So the more divinely aware we are, the more we are counteracting it. That's what I tell people. I am intensely politically active. I'm absolutely a, a dedicated social worker. I'm committed to ecological and political change because I'm trying to change consciousness. You change consciousness, you've changed it all. Because everything is a symptom of consciousness. Change consciousness and all of those problems are different. And they're all, they're all a symbol. They're all the result of lack of devotion to God. Because if God, if God in the true sense, Satchitananda, not some fanatical God who's telling you to do insane things, but devote, lack of devotion to Satchitananda, lack of an understanding of what the real power of the universe is. And it's not me and it's not my ideas. It's the bliss that dwells within me. And once that is established, nothing else can. I mean, it's not only that you, you aren't inspired to do wrong things, but the, harm, the whole planet goes into harmony because it's human thought that's causing all the trouble. It's human dissonance. Human, human dissonance is the strongest force, Master said, even in the weather. And so there's all this dissonance because we've turned away from the divine. We turn back to the divine and it all just will start equalizing.
It's really quite interesting. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much for coming this evening. So we've finished. We knocked off Lesson 14 in one night. So we'll go on to Lesson 15 next week.